0: show. This is Paul Nichols, your host of It's Your Money, the broadcast that pulls back the curtain on the financial services industry and exposes the truth about money and investing here at Financial Abundance, the uh, sponsor of our show uh, and my firm, Financial Abundance. We believe that education plus clarity can lead to confidence that can result in peace of mind. And we are going to be talking about a subject today that is near and dear to my heart, uh, and that is uh, avoiding transactions or understanding what are the truths versus the myths as it relates to investing in the market. This show is only going to be about the market, not many of the other areas we talk about. And joining me today is Deb Seward. Hey, Deb, how are you?
1: Good. How are you doing?
0: For those of you may not know Deb, Deb is in our office uh, here at Financial Abundance with offices in State College in Lewisburg. And she's going to help me today uh, do this podcast Um And the reason that I asked Deb to join me, she's been joining me lately, uh, but the reason I really wanted Deb to join me today was she comes from 30 years in the industry, um, traditional. See, I don't come from a traditional background in the industry. I was an entrepreneur that came from one industry into this industry, so I didn't come up through the training ranks, if you will, right, Deb?
1: That's right. I mean, I've, for the past 30 years, I've worked not only in trust departments on, on a bank side. I've worked right in a bank on the retail side of the bank. I've worked at brokerage firms, warehouses if you will. So all of my education has come from that format.
0: And really, uh, we don't want to get into names, but many of these banks and brokerage firms, everyone would know their name.
1: Absolutely, nationwide.
0: Large, uh, uh, global, actually. Yeah, Uh, global
1: in the one, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, So basically, what I wanted Deb to do, for those of you that have never really been through a process uh, with a registered investment advisor or through any type of planning process, many people don't realize how unique and different our process really is. Um, Now, Deb does, coming from 30 years of the traditional process. And so what I wanted to do was explain an academic approach to investing, at the same time trying to give you, the listener, some insight as to what the normal process is, the mantra, kind of the sales techniques, what are the firms trying to do, and try to bring you into the locker room, so to speak, okay? Because we're all about pulling back the curtain and exposing the truth. I don't believe you need to know everything to be a prudent investor. You only need to know the few right things. So oftentimes, the number one thing I hear from people is uh, apologies for not having a better financial acumen or understanding or having more financial literacy. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, do not feel bad that you don't. Where is it taught? Uh, Outside of courses that we teach at Penn State and South Hills and Sun and San Diego University and a few associates that I know of around the country doing the same thing, there's very little financial education uh, being taught out there. Unless you're going for a four-year degree or something like that. So let's start out uh, by talking about the traditional process, Deb. Give people an indication of how you worked in the transactional traditional, and this is what still 90% of the firms are doing Right. What was the normal deal, and how did you go about uh, doing business? Well, I guess
1: the, the, the one I'll refer to the, the most is probably what most individuals are dealing with when it comes to their individual banks. And, again, we're not here to cut that down. Uh, this is the way our process was. You contacted either existing clients that were on your on your book, so to speak, or existing clients of the bank that maybe had too much money sitting in a checking or savings account and they were looking for maybe me to uncover a need. And usually that need was some kind of a sales transaction. And a lot of times it was interest rate based. We would say, well, you know, you're only earning this much in your savings or this much in your CD. And when that matures, we could do this instead. And it was usually either a fixed uh, annuity type product where it was maybe perhaps a mutual fund and the mutual funds that we used of course you had your prospectus but all in all is very transactional and there was reporting that was needed to be done the banks wanted to see or the the head of the banks wanted to see that we were making progress of not only expanding our clients uh, products and services but we were getting a revenue driven on the bottom line.
0: But didn't you actually have sales quotas, Deb, that you... Oh. I mean, uh, have you ever heard anything like that in, in this office working with me?
1: No. I i really hated it when every week I had to have so many uh, contacts, so many uh, sales, so many transactions. I actually had to do reports upon reports, and, and it just became uh, bigger than what the real meaning of it all really was supposed to be.
0: So was it really... And, again, we're pulling back the curtain, but we don't want to sling mud anywhere. Was it really based solely on creating transactions?
1: I believe that it was. I will say, however, I guess that's what brought me to here to you, Paul. I was uncomfortable with that. And uh, because of that, I knew that there was something else out there that was better for my clients. I had a very uh, term of endearment with my clients. I always wanted to do what was right for them, what was best for them, and I never wanted to do anything that would hurt them now or in the future.
0: But you found out uh, many, many years late, so to speak, uh, that, in fact, uh, the whole industry is uh, designed around the concept of Transactions and superior research departments. Would you agree?
1: I agree, especially with the wirehouse. I had a a research department that was best to none. uh, As far as they always were looking at stocks, I'd get reports on a daily basis. We had to look at a stock ticker. We had a a person that was on the floor of the exchange, and that's. I I became so glued and so almost obsessed with the stock market and watching all of the stocks in the pick. It just drove me crazy after a while. I think you and I have talked about this before. It's like you do it after a while and it, it you, it, you, your mind can't take any more of that. Uh, but when it came to, you know, the bank side, this, the reporting became almost too heavy. And I, and I really, I, I, for lack of a better term, I used to work with this gentleman that I referred to as the used car salesman of the financial industry. And he sold all based on what was the commission. If he got a 6% commission, every client that he's talked to, bought that product because of the commission that he needed to make for his paycheck.
0: So would you agree, and correct me if I'm wrong, I've never, well, I've been in the traditional model, but not for very long, but would you agree that the whole function was get on the phone and sell some products, period? Yes. That's it. That's it. Not about planning, not about education, not about uh understanding what the necessarily the client needed, obviously it had to be suitable or it had to at least uh, pass a suitability test. Sure. Right. Now, that's pretty easy to pass uh, compared to the uh, to what we're held, the standard we're held to, which is the prudent investor rule. Right. Uh, We have to do what's in the best interest of the client not what's just suitable.
1: Now, they'll say that. They'll say that that's what we're doing and the customers come first, but it really didn't happen that way in the real world. And we did have a financial planning department, but it was mainly to produce additional transactions and to gather assets.
0: So you would uh, uh, you would go over and, and gather up the information. You would fill out a form, send that to the planning department, and they'd come back with this uh, one- or two- or three-inch, Um, hypothetical plan that talks about hypothetical returns and and superior funds based on track record investing exactly and, and and past performance and many of the myths that we want to dispel today that's correct so let's make a let's turn let's turn the corner here ladies and gentlemen that was just a little flavor of what the traditional industry is and how it's set up and what I want to do is show you that in fact there are four major myths in investing that the majority of the outfits pursue uh, based on having more transactions takes place when there's no empirical research or science to prove it. That's correct. So what I want to do now is, is take a little bit of a shift into more of an academic approach. And I'm going to do this rather swiftly because more than likely you've already seen separating Ms. Uh, from truths. the presentation, but uh, for those of you that haven't, by the way, uh, then please contact our office, and we want to make sure you do get a chance to look at that. But there's really four major traditional investing myths that are not only propagated, but they're excitingly taught as wonderful techniques for a uh, knock and loose money or taking and creating moving money from one mutual fund to another mutual fund,
1: all transactional,
0: all transactional. And what we need to do is recognize these, be cognizant of these. And if you do, you're going to be a lot more prudent investor. You don't need to know everything, but you do need to know the few right things. And here's a few right things. There are four major myths out there. One is stock selection. The definition is choosing stocks that are believed will do well in the future. What's the myth with that, Deb?
1: Well, the myth is investment advisors can consistently and predictably add value by exercising superior skill in individual stock selection.
0: And all I have to do uh, is submit to you how is your... How's your mutual fund manager doing?
1: Well, not only that, but let's go back to the broker or wirehouse the person that's picking these stocks or doing the stock research that we talked about. And that's all that was, is to generate movement of assets.
0: So what we find with stock selection is really what what the industry teaches is that there are certain people in the know that, or I should say it's implied. Implied. That there are certain people in the know that will be able to have superior stock selection, like a Peter Lynch or a Warren Buffett. But when we look at the science, we only find about 15% of the managers beat the market half the time. That means 85% of the managers are not getting market returns. So stock selection is is nothing short of a transactional uh, motivation. Right. Okay. Uh, That leads us to the second myth, which is track record investing. The definition, the use of performance history to determine the best investments for the future, the myth being.
1: Finding funds that did well in the past is a reliable method of indicating which funds will do well in the future. Now, I will tell you, this is a technique that uh, I have used in the traditional background. We'd always say, these are the best funds that's going right now. uh, Am I allowed to say names?
0: (laughs) No, let's let's avoid the names, but
1: but i had a couple of top probably top 5 different these are funds companies. or fund families yeah. that would be i aware prefer of all these, sure right. absolutely
0: here's the interesting thing deb whenever we look at the top 10 mutual funds or top 20 mutual funds for a 5 10 15 20 year period it is extremely rare to see any of them repeat so what we find is that uh the ones that are hot are the ones that are being sold in other words if you're selling based on transactions and not on science, you have to, have a hang, you have to hang a hook on something. And the only thing that you have to hang a hook on is right now that funds up. That's right. They're selling yield. Exactly. Exactly. Or returns, for those of you who may not be familiar with what yield is. So um, track record investing, again, is nothing more than another form of transactional uh, technique, sales technique. And uh, uh, there's really no science to prove out because very rarely do we see funds that repeat over periods of time. Right. That leads us to the third myth, which is called market timing. This is the one that's very subtle. Uh, in fact, we were with someone yesterday Right. and uh, he said, well, uh, my advisor just sold out of a bunch of stocks and bought a bunch of new stocks in a more defensive portfolio. And I said, well, he's time in the market. And he looked at me and he said, no, he's not time in the market. And I said, well, why else would there be
1: yeah. transactions? Why would he move, yeah. Why would he move money? Around? And
0: once he thought about it and kind of pondered on, it, he said, you know, that really is market timing. Isn't it? he's a, the myth is what?
1: Money managers are able to utilize market timing to effectively predict up and down markets.
0: So now, ladies and gentlemen, if, if there were people out there that could make these predictions about stock selection, about track record investing, which funds going to do well in the future, uh, about timing, market timing, what would their motivation be for sharing it with you? I mean, if Deb and I really had this ability, if this inference, this this, apply, this, this notion being applied out there that there are smart people like uh, a Jim Cramer, the antichrist of investing, or other people like him that are doing nothing but promoting transactions, if they really knew what was going to go on, wouldn't they be on the beach with the laptop? Deb? I know I would be. Why would they need to? <laughs> I mean, if I had that kind of insight, ladies and gentlemen, I would share it with my loved ones and very close friends. And that's it.
1: And then own some island.
0: I mean, how much? I mean, look. If I, you know, if I knew what was going to happen, all I'd have to do is make certain a couple trades a day, right? That's right. Okay. So obviously, it doesn't work. And when we look at market timing, okay, what's really really interesting, and this comes from Dalbar. Dalbar does a quantitative analysis on investor behavior every year, and what they find is the average equity fund investor. Only earns, and this is over 20 year periods, about 4% mm-hmm. because of the erroneous trading and the nature of, of all the cost involved with trading. In fact, if you took a 10 year time frame, any 10 year time frame, and there's about 2,520 trading days, 252 work days in every year, if you took 2,520 trading days, that's a 10 year period in the market, and missed the best 20 days, You would go from a positive to a negative return. That's right. Market timing does not work. The evidence on investment advisors' success with market timing is impressive and overwhelmingly negative. This is according to Charles Ellis, who wrote Investment Policy, a required reading for chartered financial planners. That's right. This leads us to our fourth and the dirty little secret. No one wants to know. And that is the cost of investing, which is really defined as fees incurred to buy, sell, uh, and own stocks or mutual funds. What's the myth?
1: What you don't see can hurt you. The only
0: thing you need to know about more, uh, the cost of investing is... Uh, let me share two thoughts with you. Okay. One is the Rule of 72, Deb. I've heard of that. Okay, the Rule of 72 says if you have a yield or a time frame... You can multiply or divide that into 72 and get the inverse number. So, for example, if I'm getting 10% the published returns on my mutual fund, hypothetically, okay, I'm just saying, not me personally, but if a person is getting 10% on their mutual fund, then how many years would it take for their money to double?
1: 7.2 years, it should be doubling.
0: If they were getting 9%, how often would it double? 8 if they were getting 7%, how often would it double? 10. You get the idea, ladies and gentlemen. It's just the inverse number. So now I have to submit a question to you. If you're out there saying, you know what, Paul, I get 10%, 12% long-term, 10-year, 20-year averages in my mutual fund or in my portfolio, I have to ask you, well, if you're getting 10 or 12%, how often would your money be doubling, Deb?
1: You know. Six
0: it, to seven years.
1: That's right. And back to the track record investing. All of this information from the mutual fund companies, that's exactly what it says. It's
0: all gross, not net. That's it. If you really, ladies and gentlemen, you think you're getting 10 or 12% because of the cost investing in something called the bid-ask spread which is the the spread between buying and selling in the market. I believe uh, the stock market, uh, Wall Street, is one of the few monopolies left. I mean, every transaction has to go through Wall Street. And if you think of the amount of volume that happens every day, even if they got a penny from every share, it's a huge amount of money.
1: Sure, it's billions of shares.
0: So think about it, ladies and gentlemen. If you're really getting these published returns of 10 to 12%, wouldn't your money be doubling every six to seven years? I submit to you. That most of your money, most of you out there listening to this might be doubling your money every 12 to 15 years. So what that tells me is after fees, you're probably not getting 10, you're probably getting 6. Right. And it's directly related to the bid-ask spread and the cost of investing. And ladies and gentlemen, this isn't published anywhere.
1: No, miscellaneous uh, transactions.
0: Variable trading costs. In the statement of additional information, which most people don't even know to ask for, that would be a supplemental uh, form to the prospectus.
1: And most people don't read the prospectus.
0: Either. So no. the, 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 these are four myths that are nothing short of predictions, sales techniques to elicit transactions to motivate people through either fear or greed to move and keep chasing the phantom and elusive golden pot of yes. investing, right? Um, and we're here to tell you that there's no in science whatsoever uh, to prove these out. Uh, and uh, in fact, there is a lot of science to debunk each of those. So when we talk about traditional investing, Dev gave you some insight there. When we talk about some of the techniques that are used, it's nothing short of traditional investing myths, stock selection, track record investing, market timing, and cost of investing. So these are the things you have to be Larry of, right? That's correct. With that being said, we don't want to come out here and point fingers and and say there's a problem without offering a solution. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk to you about something called... Free Market Portfolio Theory, which is simply an academic approach to investing that's grounded in 50 years of academic research from people like Harry Markowitz, uh, Merton Miller, William Sharpe, Nobel laureates uh, from around the world, professors from uh, Princeton, Harvard, Denheim Center for Research, uh, Finance for Research, uh, University of Chicago, um, uh, Yale, Dartmouth, just to name a few. So we're talking about some pretty, pretty big brains out there. There. And these, there are three components, and this is the story of free market portfolio uh, investing. And what we want to do is go through each of these three components rather briefly, but to make the point. The first component is something called free markets work. What would that basically mean?
1: In a free market, at any point in time, the actual price of a security will be a good estimate of its intrinsic value.
0: Back in 1965, Eugene Fama wrote a paper. That went into the, fi- uh, the, the uh, Financial Analyst Journal, uh, September, October of 65, where he basically made a, made a point that free markets work. That based on supply and demand, free markets are the best determinant of market prices. All available information is factored into the current price. For example, Bear Stearns. Remember when Bear Stearns took a dump? I do. When did it happen? After. The news was announced. Right. Okay, Only new and unknowable information and events change pricing. The randomness of the market makes it impossible for any individual or entity to consistently predict market movements and capture additional returns unrelated to risk. Prior to that, and since then, there's still this notion that is propagated out there that free markets fail. And this is the way you did all your traditional investing. Would that be true, Deb? That must
1: be true, and it makes me feel bad now, but... I'd rather know now than, than never have known at all is the way I look at that, as well as informing clients.
0: Well, if what you thought to be ter- true turned out not to be true, when would you when want would to- you want to know? Yeah. And- um, so explain to me what the free market fail, uh, what you were taught, and what you propagated as a traditional transactional planner.
1: Well, I felt that the markets really failed to price goods and services accurately. I thought it was possible for some individuals to identify in advance if those prices were inaccurate. Underpriced or overvalued markets can be forecasted or predicted. So by taking advantage of these mispricings, either in stocks or market sectors, I thought it was possible to both increase the returns... Or avoid losses.
0: And if you believe that, then it would make sense that you would pursue these traditional myths.
1: Continue to do what I used to do.
0: Chase the market. That's right. Try to outsmart the market. Try okay? to
1: pick a stock. Try to time it.
0: Right. Track record investing. Look at what it's done. Okay. And what we want to do, ladies and gentlemen, is is share with you that it's very important that you adopt one belief or another. Either you believe the market's efficient, free markets work... Or you believe free markets fail uh, because your beliefs are going to dictate actions. Now, I used to believe free markets fails because that's what I was taught. That's what right. you were taught, That's what right? I was taught as well. But several years ago when I got involved with some of these academics, I had a paradigm shift. You know, th- my thinking changed dramatically because I had new information that I'd never, never understood or applied before. So now my beliefs dictate actions, which are w- free markets work. We want to focus on capturing market returns. We're not trying to beat the market. We're just trying to get what the market will bear, and sometimes it's a bear market. We want to utilize asset classes or structured funds. We want to understand that there's dissimilar price movement. We want to own suntan lotion and umbrella companies, not one or the other, or not the one that's hot right now. We want to diversify prudently. Look, if we believe the market's efficient, Deb, we want to own the entire marketplace, Not just part of it. I agree. We don't want to chase the market. We want to eliminate some of these investment strategies. And then we want to work with someone who focuses more on education than trust. And we want to come back to that in a moment. But what would the actions be for someone who believes free markets fail, Deb?
1: Well, if you believe they fail, you you would want to continue doing some in, traditional investment strategies, as I had talked about earlier. You'd want to stay connected with all sources of financial information. Listen to your Jim Cramer show. Listen to Susie Orman, that sort of thing. <laughs> Read every investment. <laughs> Don't get you started, right? Read every investment article that you can find to stay informed what you should buy, when you should buy it, when you should sell. And then you should work with someone who shares that similar belief.
0: Now, an interesting little side note, Deb, only 15 percent of of the managers are beating the market half the time, but the vast majority of managers are using this act, the free market fail technique. Would you agree? I would definitely agree. So there's no there's no proof in the pudding. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like the nonsense that I heard after 2008 that efficient market hypothesis doesn't work, which basically says the market's efficient. Well, doggone it! You know, if the market's going down, then efficient market hypothesis does work. That's right. It's based on supply and demand it's Mm -hmm. based on now we had some political involvement we'll leave that alone but the point is component number one we do not believe you can time the market we you can predict the market i don't care how much reading and studying you do even a blind pig will root up an acorn once in a while there you go Mm -hmm. but the fact of the matter is there's no one with any consistency in fact when we think of money managers, what's the first name that pops up as far as money gurus? That would be Warren Buffett. Sure. You know, Warren Buffett adopts our way of thinking. Yes, he does. He believes in a more efficient market viewpoint, a buy and hold structured strategy, and he's wrong 40% of the time. Well, just like you said, no one can predict. And if they could, then there would be no need to, to share that they can predict. They right. would keep it a secret, you would think. So component one, do free markets work? Um, That's the first question, and you know what, ladies and gentlemen, until you determine what philosophy you want to adopt, you're never going to be able to have peace set about investing because um, I'll just tell you that until you really have a clear philosophy as to what you're doing, there's always going to be strife or turmoil uh, in your thinking because you're not going to be totally grounded in what you're trying to accomplish.
1: And I think that's what I was doing for 30 years, Paul. I was... I, knowing that that's the only educational information that I had is what the traditional way was teaching me, but yet I was budding it because I knew there had to have been a better way out there to take care of my clients. What and you, that's you,
0: what prof, prompted me to come to you. Right. You had the same dilemma I had. You're listening to the industry, you're doing what the industry's doing, and you're watching your clients' counts continue to attenuate. And you have this relationship with the client where you, you're saying, hey, I'm your coach. I'm your guy. I'm your person. I'm the one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you uh, create a financially secure future. And But we're kind of in the middle. Right. That's why I broke away from all of them, Deb. And I don't work with any of them. I took my company and directly registered it with the Securities and Exchange Commission. I got tired of these large firms dictating to me nothing more than sales babble. Yes. So anyway, I'm getting a little passionate. Let me go on to component number two. We're talking about the science of investing, and that would be modern portfolio theory. Now, this came from uh, uh, this uh, came from Harry Markowitz, William Sharp, and Merton Miller. Uh, they all won the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1990 um, for all their work in this area. Harry Markowitz is known as the godfather of portfolio theory. Now, all you got to realize, and we'll make it real simple. What's so revolutionary about this science and uh, all the research uh, – and by the way, everyone out there adopts to Harry's – Everyone, every guy I know in the, or gal in the financial industry believes in modern portfolio theory.
1: Yes, uh, me included.
0: But how many you practiced it? Did you practice no. it where you work? No, I did not. Absolutely not. No. We believe that you've got to understand the concept of dissimilar price movement, that um, the industry as a whole will chase whatever's up. If it's small companies, large companies, international, I I think of it as umbrellas. Okay, it's raining a lot. Umbrellas are up right now. Let's go buy a bunch of umbrellas and sell off the suntan lotion. Well, doggone it, then it starts, the sun comes out and you're stuck with a bunch of umbrellas. It'd be better to realize that if I owned umbrella companies and sunscreen companies that... Collectively, uh, by themselves, each one of them is risky, but when you put them together, they actually lower the volatility because you're going to be up whenever whenever it rains or the sun shines. So think of the market as going up a flight of stairs with the yo-yo. It's always gone up and down and vacillated, but it's always gone up. We never know what's going to be up. And if you look at the hot asset class every year, it changes. It goes from, you know, in the last year it was international. The year before that it was bonds. The year before that it was large companies. You never know what's going to be hot, so you want to own all of them. And that very simply is the concept of modern portfolio theory. That takes us to the third and final component, which is really the component that tied it all off. We believe the market's efficient. We practice the science of modern portfolio theory, and then we combine that with something called the three-factor model, which was brought to us by Eugene Fama and Kenneth French, who created the largest decile database in the world on the returns of uh, asset classes. In other words— They went out and it took them three years to do this with a bunch of research assistants, and they asked the questions. These guys were professors at Harvard and Dartmouth, Yale, and they basically said, we want to know where the variabilities of returns come from. They went out and built this massive database, and after three years of work and input, what popped out was three factors, and they are, Deb?
1: One was the market factor. Which is? Which is we know that being in the market is riskier than being out of the market, but it also has a higher return.
0: About 4 to 6%. So what they found is about a 4 to 6% premium by being invested in a stocks and bonds mutual funds than being invested in cash. It's called the market factor.
1: Right. The next would be the size factor. We know that small companies are riskier than large, but we know that small historically has provided a higher rate of return.
0: About 1% to 3% premium. So we want to own small companies, not just large. Unfortunately... In the traditional transactional model, what did your clients end up owning an awful lot of?
1: Uh, overweighted in the large company area.
0: Yeah, and it, which is really uh, – it gets to the bid-ask spread and the cost is right. why. You see, you see very few small companies in most people's portfolios because of the trading costs being higher in the small than the large companies. And as a result, it really is a bummer because small has been the leading asset class many more times than large has been
1: has sure has been now diversification is the key you don't Obviously. want to own it all and they, Absolutely. You know your percentage is your risk
0: you never know what's going to be up and That's in a right. well diversified portfolio you're going to have parts of the portfolio always that are mundane
1: mm-hmm. earnings
0: you, you we're, know,
1: all, we're not trying to beat the market
0: if your portfolio is moving lockstep with the nightly news the S&P and the Dow what's that tell you it's all large companies yep there is no diversification that brings us to the third factor which is
1: it's called the value factor Uh, And what we mean by that is there are value companies and there are also growth companies. And probably the best way for us to analyze that is Walmart, for example, would be considered a growth company because they are a large company. They get the best interest rates if they need to borrow, have good profits. On the other hand, we have our Kmart that even though they do well, they've done some reorganization in the past, but they still have done well, a little bit riskier.
0: They would be considered an unexcellent or... I don't like using the word distressed, but let's go ahead and say that a distressed company. A value company is simply an unexcellent or a distressed company. It costs them a little more to do business because they're distressed. They're not bad companies. And if we own distressed or unexcellent companies, we're going to see a 2 to 4% premium with value over
1: Overgrowth. growth. And we, and we should because with risk comes return.
0: Okay. So – A snapshot of modern portfolio theory when you apply these three things is uh, that basically we believe that, in fact, the free markets work, that prices reflect values and information accurately and quickly, plus modern portfolio theory, diversification reduces risk, portfolio risk versus security risk. Okay. See – Uh, Let me just leave that alone. And the last thing um, is that the three-factor model is an invaluable asset allocation and portfolio analysis tool. The three of these things combined is what we call free market portfolio theory. And the concept is applying all the science, not what Paul thinks or Deb thinks or anyone else out there thinks, because we don't know what's going to happen. And anyone that implies that they do is either dumb Okay. Mm -hmm. Or deceitful at their very nature. And lying is based on intent. I agree. Very simply. Would you agree? The definition of a lie is intent. Yes. Not the words. It's like my daughter. I'm trying to get her to realize that. Well, honey, you can work the words around there, but it's still the bottom line is it's intent. Mm -hmm. You know, so uh, what we got to realize, ladies and gentlemen, is we got to pull back the curtain and not only understand the strategies in the industry, we got to understand the players involved and their motivation. And we're going to leave it right there, Deb. Let's just leave it right there. Uh, If you have not seen the Separating Ms. presentation, you got to get in the office and take a look at it. It'll change the way you think about investing. One other note, Deb, before I leave, I want to talk about the difference between trust um and facts can you allude to that a little bit you you had shared with me on several occasions what you were taught to do which was do what
1: well when i worked um speaking again more at a bank level when the banks are so large and they have a big client base and they've been there for years and years and generation after generation they have a certain trust level already built up knowing that banks are safe they think they're safer than insurance companies in general and so because I've an employee of the bank, they have a sense of saying, okay, a bank is conservative. We trust them. They've never led us astray. So that was kind of a back doorway of getting clients in to sit down with a professional, financial professional, such as myself. And the trust was already built in there. So whatever I would say to them, this, these are your two options. They would pick one of them from more of a trust level than anything else.
0: And maybe, let me make this point even, even further than that, Deb. Every... Every type of convention I've ever been to, I was just in a, on a conference call with a group of uh, 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 my mastermind group out in San Diego a few months back. And every single time, you know what the industry teaches us? Build a relationship and they'll do what you want. Build a relationship, they do what they want. I was in a conference call with a major company. That came up and I stood up in the room and I stopped the entire meeting. I said, wait a minute, I am so sick and tired of hearing develop a relationship, develop a relationship. What about competency? That's right. So the, the, see, think about it, ladies and gentlemen, what has happened up to this point in your financial life? What has happened is someone has tried to develop a relationship with you to create some trust. And I say, I don't really care whether I have a relationship with my professional service providers. I would prefer to, but I'd rather have a competent. Look, how many people have ever been taken advantage of some, a family member that you trust?
1: There you go. That's a good one.
0: Okay. So uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't trust your advisor, but you shouldn't trust him at first. That's right. You want the facts. That's it. Let's get away from the trust and the feelings and get to the facts. And if you start to work with us and get some more of this coaching, you're going to understand that that's exactly what we want you to do. We want you to get the facts so you don't revert to emotion-based trust decisions that could be detrimental to your long-term future. Well and said. I often say to people, how's trust working for you? Here you go. You know, So I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist or a mudslinger because that's not the case at all, but I'm also passionate about the injustice that happens. It's almost like wolves preying on sheep.
1: And it's all – trend like you said, we talked about this, but it's transactional and, and it's expected.
0: If you want to learn the 20 things that you need to know to be a prudent investor, give us a call – Check out our website. You can go to iTunes if you're listening, haven't listened to any of our shows. You can go to WJAC-TV. I'm the NBC Investor Coach. Uh, We're the new featured uh, financial advisor in the Town & Gown, a very prestigious local magazine that will be starting next month. I'll write an article. Uh, We're all over the place, and all we do is coach, and uh, we have branded ourselves that way. We're known as the Investor Coach. In fact, if you type Investor Coach in Google, Paul comes right up, Okay. I believe education will lead to clarity, clarity leads to confidence, confidence uh, can result in peace of mind. But you can't use the ostrich effect, stick your head in the sand, and expect things to change. I, I, you know, it, it reminds me of one of my favorite movies. Uh, you know, I love the movie with uh, Jack Nicholson uh, where you know, he was on the stand and uh, what's that movie? Tom Cruise is uh, you know, the one I'm oh, talking yeah. about. And he's, he's, a colonel. Yeah, yeah. he's a colonel and he says, you can't handle the truth. Ladies and gentlemen, I believe you can handle the truth, and we want to help uh, propagate that uh, and encourage you. If you have not been through an educational process, call our office, toll-free 866-867-5745. My name is Paul Nichols. You've been listening to Deb Seward. We do podcasts on a regular basis. Many of them are from my uh, syndicated radio show, which we do not do anymore. Just don't have time to do it, but we still do podcasts. So folks, if you'd like to learn more about an academic approach to investing and how to separate myths from truth, give our office a call or Google financial abundance. There's uh, almost four years of shows on our website. Hope this finds you well. Thanks for joining me, Deb. Thank you. Have a great day, folks. Hope this information helps. We'll talk to you next time. Bye.